Our Father, we are a people who understand that the only hope that we have after this life is being found in Jesus Christ. We understand that, indeed, the, um, the thing that has rendered us so incapable of facing you is our sin, and the only one who has become a remedy for our sin is the hope of the world, Christ Jesus the Lord. And so we come to worship, O oh God, and understand that that worship will not uh, have any merit whatsoever. We understand that our worship will not even be, it will not be substantive nor significant unless the Spirit of God falls fresh upon us. We cannot pray, we cannot worship, we cannot obey, we cannot serve unless. The Holy Spirit grants us power to do so. So, and so. so this morning we come and ask that you would have mercy on your people. Grant us an hour that we might be able to set aside all those distractions of our busy lives and to fix our attention on the beauty of the crucified one. Father, take our gifts now and use them. For the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Before we launch into um, a look at the scriptures this morning, I want you to meet a couple of friends of mine. Uh, Kazi and Lotzi, would you come up here for a second? Just a, just a brief introduction. Uh, most of you know uh, about my spending three months in uh, Hungary last year. Um, uh, and we, um, one of the things that I did was that I preached in a small two-year old church in Budapest, Hungary, that is pastored by this brother on my right. Uh, some of you, of course, know the name of Ronnie Stevens. Ronnie Stevens married. This is Andras Kazar. We call him Kazi, but uh, he was married to a Stanford grad, and Ronnie Stevens uh, married them. This is his friend, Lotzi, who is also working in the, in the church as a business administrator there in Budapest. But I wanted you to just hear a minute or two from my friend, Kazi. Kazi, you can hold this. There you go. Um, uh, as you know, um, the wall fell, that is, the wall in Berlin fell in 1989. Um, that means communism was uh, unraveling in 1989. And this was right in the middle of these two young men's lives. That is, you were both raised um, as young men and teenagers under communism, were you not? That's right. And you came to know the Lord at? 1985. At, uh, in, at the university there in Budapest. No, that wasn't in Budapest. I was a student in another city named Debrecen, but Lazi was a student in Budapest. Uh-huh. And both of you had been raised under the reign of communism. Right. T- just tell me, just a, real quickly, and then we'll, we'll let you return to your seats. What do you remember about uh, having been raised as a communist, coming to know the Lord and... Um, the, the, the changes that that wrought, or just comment on that. So I became Christian in 1985, and I was 20 years old that time, and I remember when I held the Bible in my hand in the first time, I was 20 years old. So I never saw a Bible. I didn't know what was in it, really. I just heard that only the superstitious people goes to church 
and only uneducated people. So why I should go <laughs> there. And even I didn't know who was, I was not sure who was on the cross because uh, when I saw in the crucifixion in the Catholic churchyard, so I was not sure who was on the cross. I was so ignorant in this area. And when I first uh, got a Bible, a New Testament, I started to read. I started to read Gospel John, and I couldn't, uh, how to say, put down. I just read the whole Gospel, and I discovered this is not a superstitious stuff. This is real life. So I read the whole New Testament, and before that year end, ended, I read the whole Bible because it was so new for me, and I really discovered that there is living God, and he changed me too. Great. Yes. Thank you. Um, we don't have much more time. I just wanted you to meet Kazi. Um, one of my joys was to meet him and his wife and his children and to be in his church on a couple of occasions, and on one of those uh, filled in for Kazi. So hope you'll get to meet these two men before, before the day's over. Thank you, Kazi. <clears throat> Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, at verse 1. Let me read you just the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Exodus chapter 20 at verse 1. Here we go. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Before we uh, return to our study of the book of Acts, which uh, we will get to, I, I, we'll finish it up sometime, um, but before we go back to that, um, which we left at the end of, Dece end of November, 1st of December, um, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to do something else. I, I wanted to tell you more about my sin. Do you remember where we left uh, the book of Acts? It was um, in Acts chapter 17, you may recall. Uh, Paul was in the city of Athens. He was dialoguing and debating with the philosophers of Athens, the Athenian philosophers at the Areopagus. And he was surrounded by this, um, this panoply of of idols. Well, that just started me to thinking. And what, you're, what we're going to do for the next several weeks is the result of that thinking. You are about to get some of my best work. Now, now don't get your hopes up. I'm not saying that the sermons are going to be all that good. But um, 
but I'm about to strive at, at doing something that the Puritans used to love to talk about. They used to describe the pastor as being a physician of the soul. I love that. I love that title. A physician of the soul. And I, and I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, I am, I am really cranked up about trying to do that. Any, any great preacher or even good preacher, of which I would not consider myself one, but they will tell you that the best counseling comes via the pulpit. People like Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, your best work would, would be counseling from the pulpit, where the, where the scriptures are fully and, and adequately and faithfully explored and applied. Well, that's what I want to do. That's why I say you're about to get some of my best work. Because what I'm, what I'm merely saying that I'm going to try. I'm going to try to give you some of the best counsel you've ever heard. And it's going to spring from a series that we're going to do. On the first commandment. Oh, great, Jimmy. I mean, uh, couldn't you give us something a little bit more practical? Well, don't shut down just yet. Don't, don't unplug. Don't, don't uh, begin to let your mind wander just yet. I think you're going to be surprised. I hope you will be. I hope you will be pleasantly surprised at just how practical is a series on the first commandment. As this series unfolds, and it'll be several weeks, ladies and gentlemen, so uh, buckle up. But um, my most difficult job, my most difficult task is to convince you that our mental health, that our emotional well-being is tied to our obedience to the first commandment. Our disobedience to the first commandment, which is, of course, idolatry, our disobedience to the first commandment has, um, has given us a theology of insecurity. So much of the, of the woe that we experience today in our inner man, in our, in our uh, emotional health, I'm telling you, is the result of our disobedience to the first commandment. I, I'll say it again. So much of the woe that is included in our lives, particularly in the inner man, comes as the result of our disobedience, our idolatry, our disobedience to the first commandment. So, I say to you, our emotional well-being, our mental health is tied to our obedience to the first commandment. Gang, we, uh, we Christians, we tend to to see idolatry only at, at the fringes of our lives, at, the, at, at life's margins. 
What I'm hoping is that God the Holy Spirit will allow me to successfully convince you that your mental health, your emotional well-being, your, if I could say it this way, solidity as a person. Does that communicate? I mean, a solid, whole, healthy person. is um, the result is going to come, is going to be influenced by our obedience to the first commandment. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that nothing is more practical than that. I want to read you a sentence, just a sentence, and and the language is a little bit wooden, so I'm going to read it a couple of times. But it's a quote that comes from Matthew Henry. uh, 300 years ago, 350 years ago, Matthew Henry, some of you have got his commentaries. But Matthew Henry said this, listen to this, God has been pleased therein to twist interests with us so that in seeking his glory, we really and effectually seek our own true interests. Did you get that? God has seen fit. God has been pleased. To twist interest with us. That is, that his glory and our interest are so inextricably intertwined that to seek his glory is to seek our own self-interest. Let me read it to you again. God has been pleased to twist interests with us so that in seeking his glory, we really and effectually... Seek our own true interest. Oh, my friends, how I want you to believe that. That in seeking his glory, we are effectually and really and honestly seeking a true biblical self-interest. But, my friends, do you see the converse of that? The opposite. Turn it around. To not seek his glory is to inflict ourselves with wounds, bruises. To not seek his glory is to self-inflict. And what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that at the center of seeking his glory, I think this makes sense. At the center of seeking his glory is that you and I must not have any other God before him. I'm saying that you and I would be a whole lot healthier. As individuals, as persons, we would be a whole lot emotionally healthier. If we would obey the first commandment. Now guys, the first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. Um, If you and I would fully and dutifully obey the first commandment, all of the others would be more doable. Now you and I, we think that... um, well, that, that, that number seven, that seventh commandment, that's a tough one. Thou shalt not commit an adultery. 
That's a tough one. Or number 10, uh, thou shalt not covet. That's a tough one. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that those are tough. Yeah. But they're tough. Because we violate the first commandment. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, and don't get me wrong here, but there is a sense that we don't even need the other nine. If we were to fully obey number one. Now, obviously, we do need the other nine because God gave them to us. And so I, I hope you're not seeing, I hope you don't hear me attack God's word. I, the last, but I'm simply saying in one sense, if the first commandment was fully and dutifully obeyed, we wouldn't need the other nine. So my task uh, this morning and, and in the coming weeks is to explain to you why number one, that is the first commandment, is so crucial and influences everything else. And to do that, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to start by giving you a working definition of idolatry. Because idolatry is the grand violation of the first commandment. You've got to understand what the violation is. So that you can appreciate the injunction. And the injunction, of course, is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, to give you a working definition of idolatry, which ain't going to be easy, but I've, I've got to broaden your thinking. I've got to broaden what you normally think of as idolatry. Now, gang, are, have I lost you yet? Again, here's my goal. My goal is to convince you that your emotional health and mental well-being is tied to the, first, to the obedience to the first commandment. That's my goal. And I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the first commandment is the first commandment for a reason. Because in one sense, all of the others become doable if we obey the first one. And conversely... All of the other nine become undoable when we violate the first one. So, what is the grand violation of the first commandment? Idolatry. So, where I've got to start is by broadening your thinking about what it is that, I, that is referred to when I say idolatry. Now, gang. I've never been to Africa or Asia where, you know, there's idols that abound. And, very honestly, I, I have no desire to go there. <laughs> but if the Lord requires of me, I, I will go. Um, I, I did have an invitation to India one time, and I turned it down, and I, um, I've, I've had a conscience about it ever since. But, but my point is, I've, I've not been to those continents but I have been inside several cathedrals in Europe. And, and in all of those cathedrals, and, uh, you know, my wife says, when you're saying money, you're saying them all. Um, and in all of those cathedrals, there will always be included in those cathedrals one little area, one little section of the cathedral that is devoted to Mary. And over in that section, here's what you're going to find, invariably. 
you're going to find this statue of Mary. And out in front of her, in some various way, there is some kind of table, some kind of tray. Large thing, uh, maybe this size, this tray that is out in front of the statue of Mary. And on that tray are these little candles that are in these little metal cylinders. And you can buy the candles right there next to the statue. You put your money in the little box. You take a candle. You light the candle. You put it in the tray. You kneel and you pray. To Mary. Now, when, when I say idols, it's that kind of thing that often comes to our minds. Or, or maybe some squatting Buddha um, somewhere. But gang, that is not what I'm talking about. Set that mental picture aside. Because when I talk about violations of the first commandment, I'm really not alluding to that. Idols are not found just on altars in Africa somewhere. But they are found in well-educated human hearts and minds. Like you. The Bible will not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of our lives. Gang, I, I don't have time because we're going to go to the Lord's table in a minute, but go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, and you'll find where Paul mentions all these sins, and then he mentions covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. Well, there's one expansion of the definition. Paul calls covetousness in Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 3, 5. He, he defines covetousness as idolatry. Gang, the Bible will not allow us to limit it to some statue in Africa. The Bible shows that idolatry is nothing like that, that crude, simplistic picture that springs to our minds of some kind of figurine in some distant land. And I don't know how they got this statistic, guys. I don't know who did the survey. I don't know where it came from. I simply read it, and I can reproduce it for you if you like. But here's the statistic. 76% of Americans believe that they are fully obedient to the first commandment. <laughs> now, how could you possibly come to such a conclusion? I'll tell you how you do it. What you do is you define idolatry as a statue rather than something that exists inside the human heart. I want you to know something, ladies and gentlemen. If idolatry is nothing more than bowing down to some statue in a faraway country, I'm innocent. So are many of you, 76% of you. The other 20%, 24% of you, we need to talk to you. But, but guys, if that's all it is, hey, 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 I'm okay. But that's not all it is. And I want to show you that. And if you hadn't closed your Bibles yet, I want you to see, uh, just, you'll see a couple of passages, but I do want you to see this one. It's in Ezekiel 14. I'm going to read you one verse out of Ezekiel 14. We've got to hurry, but Ezekiel 14, verse 3. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 14, 3. Son of man, says God to Ezekiel, these men have set up their idols in 
their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see what the Bible has done? The Bible allows us to expand our definition of idolatry to include things that go on inside of us, not outside of us. Well, that could go on outside, but I don't think you're guilty of the outside. But I think every one of us is guilty of that one. Folks, um, anything that demands your affection has the potential to be an idol. I want to read you another quote. This is the sentence. It's from Tertullian. Tertullian is a first century, second century A.D., uh, early apostolic father, um, north coast of Africa, early Montanist. Maybe you recognize the name. Uh, Tertullian said, and listen to this. This is unbelievable. He says, just a sentence, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. Can I read you that again? <laughs> the principal crime of the human race. The highest guilt charged upon the world. The whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. Okay, okay, Jimmy. Okay, fine. If it's not some kind of metal figurine, then for heaven's sakes, tell me what it is. All right, you need your Bibles again. Go with me to Romans chapter 1. I want to read you three verses out of Romans 1. This isn't, we're, we're having to stop in about seven minutes, so guys, because we're going to go to the Lord's table, but um, that's all we got left. Romans chapter 7, verses uh, 21 to 23. Here it is. Again, what we're trying to do is build a definition of idolatry. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, etc. Now, guys, our root problem is our unwillingness to glorify God and to give Him the, the, the centrality which is His due. Sin predisposes us to want to live independently of God. Consequently, we choose created things as gods. And there's a whole list of them. We believe, ladies and gentlemen, the lie that something, something other than God can give us the life and the joy that we so long for, which can only be given to us by God. We, we, but we're convinced that if we're ever to, to, to really be happy, we're going to have to have something in addition to God. Oh yeah, we'll take God, but it's going to be God plus Something else. And that thing, whatever it is, becomes a God. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I am convinced that the number one deception that Satan has perpetrated on the minds of you and me is this. God is not good. And that being a Christian, we're going to somehow miss out on all the fun. There's a party going on, and we didn't get invited because we're Christians. And I want to go to the party. And so, I'm going to have to have him plus something else to really make me happy. And ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's, the, here's the unbelievable thing. Even after becoming a Christian, our old false gods, our old false saviors distort our lives significantly. Gang, our naivete about, about idolatry in, in the Christian's life is, is similar to the price that was paid by the city of Troy when they pulled in the horse and gladly opened their gates and said, come on in. Of course, the horse was filled with enemy soldiers. And of course, that's what we're doing. Because we are so naive when it comes to this subject of idolatry, we're just, come on in. Guys, in case you doubt that, I want to quote for you the last verse of John's first epistle. You know, first John, the one that you love so much, the one that talks about the love of God, the only place in the Bible where the God is love is found twice in first John four. Do you know what the last verse, the last verse, the very last verse, the very, very, very last, last verse, verse of first John is here. It is. I'm quoting it for you. Little children. Little children, keep yourself from idols. What? That is addressed to us. Now tell me this, ladies and gentlemen. Why? Why does that admonition merit being the closing statement in a 105-verse treatise on living in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Why? I'll tell you why. Because, ladies and gentlemen, keeping ourselves from idols is the very essence of intimacy and fellowship with Jesus Christ. But, guys, we're not much better than the non-Christian in, in resisting idols because our, our definition of idols is so warped. Gang, anything that demands your affection has the potential of being an idol because it has the potential of loving it too much. Gang, St. Augustine said once, and I'm kind of butchering the quote, but it goes something like this. He said, our big problem is not that we're such big, bad violators of the law, that we're doing all these bad things. Here's what he said. No, that's not our problem. Our problem is inordinate loves. Inordinate loves. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we got a pack of them. Like what, Jimmy? Well, how about job or money or kids or alcohol or sex or sleep? How about college football? How about sugar? You know, guys, it can go on forever. You know, 
this is the most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible. Consequently, this series could go on forever. <laughs> I promise you it won't. But, but guys, anything that has the, that draws out your affection has the potential to be a God. Jimmy, are you telling me that I love my kids too much? No, I'm not telling you that. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that you love God too little in comparison to your kids. And it's become an inordinate love. You know, we, we think we got this first commandment down pat. Oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen. Those eight little words, seemingly so inconsequential, influence every facet of my life, both now and eternally. Guys, underneath all sin is a violation of the first commandment. It, it, again, I said it's the most frequently mentioned sin in the Bible. In fact, in um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses summarized the whole distortion of the covenant as I do. He equates those two. You're going to forget the covenant and you're going to build an idol. Once we move away from God, this is the first thing we do. Now, let, let me close with this, guys. I, I want you to hear, because again, I want you to remember my goal. I'm convinced we would be far healthier people if we would give unmitigated obedience to the first commandment. But listen to me. The, the first commandment is rational. That is, it starts off this way. I am the Lord your God. Da, 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 da. It, it, it appeals us for us to think about who we are and where we came from, our, our origin, etc., etc. It is, I'm saying again, impossible to obey the, the other nine until we address this one. That's why number one is number one. But he, here's my point. That's my point in pointing out that it was rational. Tell me this, ladies and gentlemen. And you say it all the time. Why do people throw away everything to have her or him or it? Why will they sacrifice everything to have another drink? To look at another internet piece of porn? Because I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, sin is irrational. And it has rendered us irrational. And who is it that ends up paying the price? We do. I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, most of our deepest disappointments in this life come because we look to certain things to give us what only God can give us. And we got a list of them. And in our, um, our tendency is to believe that if I can have that, 
then I will be happy. And I'm telling you, my friend, you and I are paying a very steep price. I'm going to try to convince you with every fiber of my being that our mental health and our emotional well-being is tied to our obedience to the first commandment. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it is the great and good God who says to us, I am your worth. I am your honor. I am your beauty. I am your riches. And if you would like to be ravished by that beauty, then you're going to have to spend some time gazing on what Jesus Christ has done for his people on the cross. And it is to that that I now invite you. Our Father, I do pray that you will convince your people of that which is true, that you have seen fit to, to twist interests with us, that in seeking your glory, we effectually and, and really seek our own great good. So now, Father, we come to ask you to forgive us of our sin and meet us. Oh, God, meet us at this table. Might these common elements be turned into a glorious piece of beauty for us. As we are reminded and as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. Meet us here, Lord, for Jesus' sake.